Welcome back to the Alliance Podcast, Continuing Conversations. In this episode, Dr. Brian McGowan sits down with Dr. David Price for an installment of the Legends interview series. Listen in as Dr. Price discusses his career in medicine and healthcare CPD, starting with his medical origin story, which dates back to his early teenage years. Plus, Dr. Price shares his passion for music and how it plays a role in CPD. He also reminds listeners that repetition is the key to adult learning and gives insight to how future CPD professionals can continue the work of those who came before them. If you like what you hear today, subscribe and continue listening wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I am joined by Dr. David William Price, um, who by all accounts is a tremendous fellow. He is, in fact, a fellow of the AAFP. He is a fellow of the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions, and he is a fellow for of SACME. Um, and so many, many, many letters after his name. And he's gracious enough to join us today. So as we do with almost all of the interviews, we'll kind of walk through his career, his contributions, um, that embarrassing part where he talks about his legacy, um, which always makes people uncomfortable, but I'll try to keep it pretty uh, lighthearted. Um, working backwards, we'll work through uh, his more recent work with ABMS, back to the 90s, uh, where he had served in numerous educational leadership roles, back to how he chose medical education as one of the focuses, foci, of his professional career. But we'll start, as we do with each of these interviews, with the origin story. So, um, Dr. Price, David, if I may, uh, can you um, can you walk us back through what life was like when you chose medicine? Sure, uh, Brian. Thank you, and thank you so much for uh, for uh, chatting with me uh, today. Like many in the field, I have a, actually a distinct memory of when I decided to become a doctor. I was living in uh, New England. Uh, at the time in Rhode Island, uh, where my father was working. And we took a seventh grade class trip to the Boston Museum of Science, one still one of my favorite places. And I remember they turned us loose, you know, with a be back by such and such an hour deadline. And I remember wandering through the museum with a friend of mine, and we came across the uh, exhibit uh, the body in medicine. And there was this particular exhibit that sort of walked through the stages of what was then open appendectomy. And we spent what seemed to be an inordinate amount of time for what I recall as three or four little panels of appendectomy. But we were both so enthralled by it that both of us decided at that point in seventh grade that we wanted to be physicians. It turns out my friend at the time ended up being a physician also. He became a pediatrician, I became a general physician. The, 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 partly a social norming there, partly like uh, just building that network early on. So you, you were never on an island. You make it through. That was, you said seventh grade? I was seventh grade. Yeah, that was right about the time I, I, I was going to be the orthopedic surgeon for Notre Dame football team, I think. Either that or a professional wrestler. I think we have basically somewhere around 11 and 12 years old. All right, so um, you make this decision. You still now have another eight or nine years before you've got to uh, choose a major. You're up in Rhode Island. Do you, do you stay in Rhode Island? Do you move around the coast? Where where's life take you as you get into the medical school years? As, uh, as we entered, as I entered high school, uh, my father changed jobs and we moved back to uh, New Jersey where I was actually born and raised for the early part of my career. And I ended up graduating uh, high school in central New Jersey and attending uh, Rutgers, the state university, where I uh, went and got both of my undergraduate uh, degree. I was sort of the straight biology um, student, if you will. And then went on to uh, what was then Rutgers Medical School uh, and that is now UMDNJ Rutgers Medical School. Never looking back, like so. So, in 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 my story, I get three quarters of the way down the path, and recognize that there's a difference between injury and illness. And the idea of injury excites me, and the idea of illness frightens me. And I, I knew at that point that I was so far down the path, I had to kind of go through it, but. 
I was never going to end up treating patients. Did you ever look back? Did you ever have doubts? There was a, there was a time uh, I, I do mu music uh, in my in my spare time, and there was a point in time where I, I was a classically trained pianist, and there was a point in time where I was actually fairly good, and there was a decision point to be made about which of my interests was I going to pursue, music or medicine. And I decided that uh, music for me was better as a, uh, an avocation, whereas medicine could be both an avocation and a vocation. So after that point, which was uh, early in high school, there was really no looking back. Have you ever thought if you drew either motivation or experience through all the hours of training to become a classical pianist? I mean, that, that ability to develop that skill seems like it eventually feeds into professional development training or am I making a leap there? I, I think you're not making a leap. There have actually been a few articles that have been written by people much wiser than I about the similarities between music, particularly jazz with a lot of improv and medicine. But I think there are a lot of parallels to be a musician, particularly if one plays with others, you really have to have good listening skills. So in medicine, I translate that to, of course, listening to the patient as a family physician, but also listening to members of the team, listening to your colleagues, listening to their perspectives, identifying that not only how I can take better care of a patient, but how I might need to learn other things. There's also a creative aspect of, uh, of music that uh, actually does play into uh, CPD as, as you and I think about it. Because even though we know there's about what works and what doesn't, there's a lot of room for creativity in there. So calling on the creative aspects of having a musical background, I think in some way helped me in the creative aspects of putting together CPD programs over the many years. Um, I, I always use the analogy of, of, you know, I've spent so many years and years in team sports and that ability to be a team player and how that works in team-based settings and systems-based settings i gotta imagine that same especially as in, in on the jazz side of things that that there's lessons you took from that like play your role play it when it's your time you know is, is there there's got to be some publications out there about the team-based analogies between music and medicine yeah, I, I imagine they are. And, and just to be clear, I, am, I would not position myself as a jazz musician at all. But even in uh, sort of the folk and the rock things I do as a member of a band, one has to learn when to step up front and step in the background and blend things together. So it all comes out sounding like something that is really blended and nice rather than a bunch of people competing for the limelight. I touched on the music, the musical training piece. So you, you've, you're obviously you're excelling as a student. School something, education something that interests you because you've now committed to this extra ten to twelve years of it. At at that point, and I know hindsight is not nearly twenty twenty. Do you find yourself thinking about learning? In in a couple of ways, I retrospectively. I'm looking back on my time through college and medical school. I had a difficult time with lectures and being lectured at. I would you know, do my best to attend and take notes and things, but it was always the reflection afterwards and additional learning on my own that got me through all the rigorous training that we go through. Of course, I had no idea or no insight at the time of how that relates to what we know now about CPD and learning. It was just sort of an aha. And perhaps I'm using the retrospective scope uh, for a little bit of uh, just reassurance, um, you know, cognitive reassurance uh, sorts of things. I really didn't fall into wanting to be an educator or having an inkling that I even could potentially add something as an educator until my residency. So I went into to training, medical school, uh, fell in love for family medicine. I went into family medicine training, always with the intent of spending my career being a full-time frontline family physician. As we all have uh, formative um, and sometimes scary experiences during residency, my first day as an intern, I was on call in the ICU. And I still remember the first, first call I got was, Dr. Bryce, there's a patient in the unit who's got crushing chest pain, blah, 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 you know, having the panic 
um, that we all have in relying on my friends and colleagues and the nurses, especially the nurses, uh, to get to get me through that experience and more importantly to get the patient through the experience. So we progressed through that first year of internship and then all of a sudden July 1st of the second year hits and all of a sudden we are charged with being not only a resident but a supervising resident. And early on in my first couple of days of being the second year resident on call and working with the new intern, I realized that I actually probably could teach somebody something about something and thought about, wouldn't it be interesting to do teaching as part of my career at some point? There's there's a, a thread through almost all of the interviews that we've done. Really interesting to look back at it is, is when people have that metacognitive moment where they're in the process of doing something and they recognize that maybe I should think more about what I'm doing. It's like, it's, it's just almost out of body experience. I think both Dave Davis and Don Moore shared similar things like that first time they thought about learning. They've been sitting in classrooms for 20 years and to actually think about learning and teaching, I guess I had a similar experience for those who are listening. Um, I, I, I use names like Don Moore and Bob Fox and Joe Green, Jocelyn Lockyer, Carol Havens, all people we've interviewed in the past. And it's in so many ways, kind of the impetus of this entire series was that I've known these individuals for almost 20 years. And that I remember 20 years ago thinking, and I say this with all love, where's the next generation after them, right? The, 20 years ago, I remember thinking like all the leading researchers, the leading educational scientists in this field um, were all of a generation. And what I find a little interesting is David, is you're a half generation behind them, or in some cases, a full generation behind them. So each of those individuals was college graduated in the early seventies, your college graduated in the early eighties. Um, and so, it's taken me almost 15 or 16 episodes to gain 10 to 15 years on the field to move forward, but we will continue. And this theme will probably come back up is the strive to figure out where that next generation of educational scientists is that's going to move the field forward. So, so now you're, you're a supervising resident and you're starting to really think about the time that you're putting into training and mentoring. And I would imagine you're thinking about, well, how do I, if I'm going to be doing this, if I have these responsibilities, how do I do it well? Like, does that, does that bubble to the surface that this is now one of your responsibilities and therefore understanding how people learn, how information gets disseminated? That's, that's a new research interest or becoming a new interest? I'd say I was, I was a little bit slow on the uptake, uh, let's say. So I, I finished my, uh, residency and as I had planned went into full-time frontline family medicine at the, after I finished my residency I moved from New Jersey to Colorado where I joined uh, Kaiser Permanente uh, the Colorado Permanente Medical Group where I spent 27 years and had an absolutely fabulous career and was so fortunate uh, to be in the right position to be able to do a lot of things but I started out as a, a full-time clinician not really thinking about faculty and teaching other than at some point, wouldn't it be nice too? And at the same time, uh, the, my now wife, who I was still dating at the time, was a year behind me in family medicine residency. Uh, so I became part-time faculty uh, at her residency uh, in Denver and spent a number of years as a part-time uh, faculty member. Part-time meaning I was, I, I was one of the docs who did rounds and uh, with the with the residents and would participate in lectures and things like that. So, uh, but it was not a paid role per se. It was I was a full time frontline family physician who also did volunteer teaching, as many of uh, many folks in family medicine do. And some of our best teachers are those sort of clinician preceptors, uh, if you will. So I was able to uh, satisfy my urge uh, to teach, if you will, by being involved that way. But more importantly. Being with the residents and being not that far ahead of the residents at that time was a motivation to make sure I kept up because the last thing I wanted to do was just as in residency, 
was to impart the wrong information or misdirect folks. So it was a big emphasis uh, or big impetus for me to keep up on my own learning while I was serving as volunteer faculty in Denver. Um, not to jump too far forward, but at some point you are looking at and actually begin to publish studies around how clinicians determine what they need to learn, how clinicians determine where they need to learn, how they need to learn, like from these preceptorship experiences, which are formal and informal, to understanding the lifelong learning process of a clinician. That's, this is what's bubbling to the surface. This is what's going through your mind in, in those, like throughout the 90s. So like many things, it, it was an evolution. I had a number of fascinating, uh, and again, was very fortunate to have a number of great positions in addition to uh, being a clinician in Kaiser. And at one point when I was transitioning between leadership roles, uh, I, I became faculty at uh, the University of Colorado where I got to do some precepting. When that particular leadership role outsourced, if you will, to the university, uh, wrapped up and I was coming back into full-time living in Kaiser Permanente, Colorado, Colorado Permanente Medical Group, I was asked if I wanted to be the director of medical education. Uh, and my answer was, sure, but I just don't want to sign papers and you know, stamp and approve lectures and stuff like that. That seems to me to be very unrewarding. If we're going to do something with education here in in this integrated healthcare system, it would be really nice to try to align the education we're doing with the needs of our patients and the needs of our system. So I want to do things a little bit differently, and would you be okay with that? And again, this is a, this is a testament to enlightened leadership and, and really good timing. Uh, the medical directors I was working with at the time said, that sounds great to us. Um, it sounds like you might perturb things a little bit. Um, we know you well enough, but we'll have your back, thank goodness. Um, so go forth. So during those years in the mid 90s, we spent time doing a number of things. The first was getting rid of the lecture, uh, if you will. So like, like much uh, education at the time, it was pretty much the standard, you know, hour long or hour and a half long lecture with a bunch of slides, a few questions scattered in between, those sorts of things. And I started reading, delving into the literature by Bob Box and Paul Masmanian and all the, you know, the, the luminary, Dave Davis, all the luminaries you mentioned, uh, many of whom I've gotten to know. Um, great perk of his career, by the way, is knowing all those great folks. But I started reading all the evidence and being in an evidence-based organization I thought we ought to be practicing what we were preaching. So job one was transitioning away from the lecture and getting into reflective case-based interactive uh, CME, CPD. There was a period of a few months where our most common evaluation was bring back the lecture, bring back the lecture, bring back the lecture. And I that had, had been rewarding. Not unexpected, but nonetheless, I went to the medical director who I reported to and said, just so you know, there's some pushback, but here's the evidence. I'd like to keep at this for a little while. And he said, fine. Um, one of the early indicators of success was when bring back the lecture, bring back the lecture became less and less frequent. And people started really enjoying the interactive case-based discussion formats to the point where eventually we reached the phase where if we had something that was a little too didactic, we got comments about, this was too much lecture. So it took persistence for sure, and I'm sure many of our colleagues in CPD who have made this transition faced a very similar story, but uh, it does take a little bit of a transition to um, break old habits, if you will, and transition into things that we know are more evidence-based when it comes to changing practice over time. Like what you hear on the Alliance podcast? Visit almanac.acehp.org to read the latest continuing professional development news and insights. Visit today to get informed and inspired. 
there, there's there's this interesting experience, right? So you you're 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 a jobbing family physician, and you you're doing some teaching, and then someone asks you to to serve in this role. At this point, correct me if I'm wrong. You're not a fellow of SACME. You're not a fellow of the Alliance. You, you take it upon yourself, presumably, to identify the literature first, which allowed you to identify those thought leaders. Like, how do those? How did you go from being a consumer of a couple journal articles to uh, to developing leadership relationships and leadership roles outside your organization? Because the the caveat there is. I got to imagine there's lots of folks who within their organization decide that they want to improve and advance the educational offerings, the system, the integrated learning system. Um, I think there are very far fewer, uh, maybe 1%, 2% of those experiences where someone says, and I think we can do this more broadly. I think we can scale it, or I want to learn from other people's experiences. So you kind of glossed over these friends you developed, but that's a critical piece of, of your success is that you went from having questions to getting the questions answered to eventually building these relationships and collaborating now for decades uh, with those individuals. Can you, can you Can you unpack that for us? Sure. Well, for, I, as you mentioned, for me, it started with the literature. So picking up JSEP, picking up you know the educational articles that would come out in BMJ or or, or JAMA or some of the other other academic medicine, some of the other literature. Starting with um, do lectures work, or starting with some specific questions, but not knowing very much at all when I first started, I just started to read some of the literature about about medical education. I found out about organizations, you know, first the Alliance, eventually SACME, and thought it would be a great venue to continue to learn from others who've been in the field about some of the things that they were doing. I, I of course, was, uh, as, as, a, as a Kaiser Permanente uh, physician, had a relatively uh, unique, it's not the right word, I had a different perspective on education. There were many people, Carol Havens, uh, amongst them uh, who were involved in medical education at, at that point, who were in similar circumstances. But I was not in the typical academic university setting at the time, but I thought it would be great to talk to people about their experiences with a specific concept and go learn. So I joined these organizations primarily not to so much to sit and, and go through the educational offerings at the time, but to hear perspectives and then ask questions. Like many of us, I find the big meetings, the Alliance meeting, the SAC meeting, the, the value for me is really in the networking. So after a particular talk, following up with an email or just asking somebody a question about what does your work mean and how might I apply that and taking notes um, and thinking about a concept or two that I might apply, using, you know, trying to come up with two or three nuggets from each of these meetings, each of these articles that I might try. Over the course of that, over time, of course, you go to these meetings for long enough to start to meet people. And fortunately, again, people like Dave uh, Dunmore, others were very approachable. And as I had my own ideas and started socializing them, they were also uh, very open to hearing my own ideas. So these um, questions led to conversations. The conversations led to um, sharing of ideas. The sharing of ideas led to informal working relationships, which over time led to friendships, uh, which led to formal collaborations. One of the beauties of being in our field, of course, it doesn't happen overnight by any means, but for me, I guess it comes down to being a lifelong learner, taking a concept, thinking about how to apply it in my own context based upon the situation I'm coming in from, and then just vetting it with a lot of different folks to try to make it work. There's this uh, classic saying about like far too many people spend far too much of their lives worrying about mild embarrassment. Um, I just love that saying, like if you have a question, ask it. Um, in 
every JSEP article that's ever been published, there is an email address of an author in the author's acknowledgement section. Um, I, I probably send out a half, no, probably a dozen or two dozen of those emails a year to authors asking those questions. And I'm, I probably have a 75, 80% return rate. Um, I would ask the same of you, like how often do people from your research reach out to you? And I'm gonna bet the answer is not as much as you would hope. I would say uh, a fair amount. Um, it depends upon the article. And it also depends upon what you mean by reach out. So I occasionally get emails after some of the stuff we have published, but oftentimes um, at the next meeting, um, the Alliance meeting or the SACME meeting, somebody would be very kind and say, hey, I saw the article that you, you and colleagues published and what do you think about X, Y, and Z? Or somebody would see the article and say, um, you know, honor me with, hey, you want to come give a talk about that? You want to come give a session about that? And I would, in my own cutesy, or what I imagine is cutesy way, say, I don't want to stand behind a, a podium and give a lecture about it. I'd like, you know, I'd be happy to share, but have a conversation with folks about uh, what this might mean for them in their context. I, I would say I don't expect everything I do to shatter the world. Um, I think I've been fairly fortunate in some of the things that I've worked on and worked on with others. Um, have resonated with some folks, and you know, if if it changes one or two people at a time, um, that's great. Um, I am known; those who know me remember that uh, I was known for many years as having the world's worst mullet um, in professional uh, medicine. So I felt entitled to make hair jokes. And there was an old shampoo commercial about, uh, you know, they'll tell two friends and they'll tell two friends and so on and so on and so on. So I figured if, if I did something and one or two people talk about it, and they tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on and so on, that would actually over time make an impact. It's very similar to why many of us, I believe, go into education. I can do a lot um, for patients, or I hope I've done a lot for patients as a, as a family physician, that's sort of one line, one live at a time. And writing guidelines and other evidence-based things, I can help other clinicians impact a number of lives. But being an educator to help other clinicians, physicians and nurses, pharmacists, psychologists, be better at what they do, one can potentially exponentially magnify the number of lives uh, that are impacted. Although that's, they'll tell two friends and they'll tell two friends and so on and so on and so on. And that's great with me. So I, I, you and I could probably talk for hours about how we elevate, it's not there, just magnify impact, um, magnify the impact of the research that's done make people more comfortable breaking down the walls between silo, uh, between organizations to try to get best practices and bright spot. And I, that's another theme that's come up in so many of these conversations is I, I want to understand like, what was that seed of a moment when one of these legends in the field recognized that at scale, if they asked the right questions, they could benefit the broad, broadest community in many, many cases. It's so interesting to me. Um, how many times uh, 90, I say this about clinical guidelines all the time, it feels like 95 to 99% of all the effort in clinical guidelines is about creating the clinical guideline and not actually disseminating and driving the change about the clinical guideline. Um, and that number is probably closer to 99.9% .9 about any research and any publications. It's almost as if it's an episodic thing. The publication goes out and you move on to the next research project. And I, I just wish we could reverse it. Like there's so many instances where there's publications that instead of moving on to the next research project, we could spend two years advocating and disseminating how that impacts the community or the profession. And the value may be so much greater. I don't know, I play with that idea a lot. So you, it, it actually segues in because I go through your CV and, eclectic 
mix of research efforts and different projects you find yourself on. So as you're moving through Kaiser and you're, you're taking on these roles and you're meeting all these individuals, at some point, um, and you direct me where you want to go from here, at some point you start churning out in, in these different collaborations and these different leadership roles, you start churning out this really eclectic set of research areas of interest or just you know, was it was it large uh, national organizations that you were invited to be a part of? Like, how do all the pieces tie in? So we look in the 2000s, for example, um, you've published on whether clinicians know and how they know what they need to know. You've published on what clinicians feel the barriers are to them adopting best practices or changing their behaviors and practice. You've also published on how clinicians decide which education technologies are the most appropriate for them to learn. It's, it's pretty broad reaching. What, what led to all of that? Partly, I think it's a, I, I, I call it in big air quotes, the curse of the generalist. Um, so I'm interested in a lot of stuff as many folks who go into family medicine and primary care are. I also realized first myself being a busy clinician, but I've also realized throughout my career, as many of us have, is that folks are just busy. Um, and to, to be able to make sense of a lot of things coming at us, we need to leverage uh, multiple efforts. One of the big ahas I had uh, in, in Kaiser, um, one of my jobs was to be a member of what we call the knowledge management team. This was in the mid nineties when we were putting together uh, ways of being super thoughtful about QI from a, a multi-professional perspective, adopting a lot of the IHI um, uh, technology to improve in a thoughtful way, knowledge dissemination and, and, uh, and QI. And it occurred to me, this is one of those leverage moments that as we look at what we do in, in, in CME, CPD, you know, we do the needs assessment and then we develop objectives and then we put together an activity and then we implement the activity and then we evaluate it, hopefully meaningfully, other than just, I showed up, I got my credits, uh, the speaker was okay sort of thing. And superimpose that with the IHI technology, it, it, the Berwick and it all plan, do, study, act. And it occurred to me that those things actually lined up. So not only do we want to have education that was actually put into practice, but most of the things we try to accomplish or many of the things we try to accomplish in education right now are not the price don't use a sulfa drug if somebody's taking warfarin because my medical record will prompt me not to do that. But we're trying to use education to solve big, hairy, multifaceted problems that are not going to get done in a one and done sort of thing. It's not just, I learned it, I'm going to go do it, and I'm going to change the world. It takes these ongoing efforts. So it occurred to me that there is an alignment between the way we do or should be doing medical education for practicing clinicians, healthcare education, and this ongoing quality improvement projects that they line up. So that led to a passion about aligning learning and doing from a busy clinician perspective, there's, I want to be reassured that I'm doing okay in X. But most adult learners learn, really learn, when we have a problem that we're facing in practice. So if I have a problem and I'm fed back data that I'm not doing as well as my colleagues in, in, uh, in cardiovascular outcomes for my patients with diabetes, I need to go learn about that. But I'm just not going to learn a tidbit or two and all of a sudden things are going to change. So how am I going to work within my system to help monitor my progress over time so my patients do get better? So it creates this learning, doing a line cycle. But from the clinician standpoint, it's all about hopefully not just getting all the questions right on the diabetes post-test. It's about how do I have better outcomes for my patients with diabetes? So trying to line all those things up from the perspective of the busy clinician to make it worth their time and appeal to their intrinsic motivation to take better care for patients is one of the things that continues to drive them. You start, you start hearing Bob Fox in there. You start hear, certainly start hearing Dave in there, um, Ron Severo in there. The, the, 
the integrated learner, the the rapid learning healthcare system that that scaffold. So so the the idea that that is such a critical learning moment. Pause. What needs to happen in that moment to make it happen successfully? Like I think a lot of people recognize that that moment is so critical, but then are comfortable that there can be a black box there and everybody will have that moment and everybody will come out that of that moment uh, changed and improved. They've learned. But I think what I'm hearing you say is that you know, when you recognize that moment, you also recognized what do we need to do to ensure that that moment isn't lost. So in that moment, how does a clinician understand where they need to go to learn in that moment? How do they embrace that uh, the real versus the perceived need that they need? Uh, the, the, they have areas for improvement in that moment. What technologies might they look look to for greater education? So is it, is it fair to say that 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 moment itself, it, it's almost like a supernova of sorts like you you just found a whole bunch of air, uh uh questions that could be answered about that moment i think there, there are there are lots of questions and there's so many things we could touch on uh, based upon this particular thread one of which is the need of the individual to learn versus what one might call the mass customization of cpv so when i'm driving home after seeing a patient um, perhaps driving home to finish my charting. Um, I'm thinking about a patient where the interaction may or may not have gone correct, or I might have forgotten something. So I'm doing that reflection on action. And I realize I might have to learn, learn something or go look up or call somebody to, to fill out and get back to the patient. So that's, that's one of those aha moments where I'm in an encounter with a patient. I realize I don't know something. So there are these aha moments that many of us have as clinicians that drive individual work. Contrast that, and this is not a right or wrong, it's just that's one kind of learning that's driven. On the other hand, many of us who are in the biz um, of doing CPD, we're sort of doing this mass customization. So we're doing our aggregate needs analysis or needs assessment. We're coming up with aggregate gaps of a target audience of 50, 100, 200, and we're trying to develop an activity that addresses this aggregate gap. Not everybody is going to learn at the same pace. Some people might come and just for verification that they're okay. Some people might learn something but not be able to implement. Other people might learn and have a failure but learn from the failure. Other people might learn and have a success. So, um, you know, there are lots of, everybody's in individual use cases. There was an old detective spoof movie that there, you know, there's a thousand stories in the naked city. Um, well, there's, Every clinician has got their own context and their, and their own use case, if you will. So, so for me, this points out that we talked a little bit about what others would call positive deviance. So who, who've had those success stories? So trying to come up with understanding what's worked for whom under what circumstances, I've become a huge fan of realist evaluation, of identifying what we're trying to do learning. How do we not adopt? but how do folks adapt it to their situation to be successful? What works for whom under what circumstances? And I think that's a great area for us to continue to evolve our field of CPUs to get much more into the realist evaluation, taking advantage of some of the things we know for the increasing numbers of us who work in health systems about all the system science things that come in that can hopefully enable, but sometimes put up impediments for us to change as well. I don't want to lose that nugget about uh, one's not right, one's not wrong. Like the reality is that those aha moments are so critical to the lifelong learning and the improvement of a clinician. But from that moment, there's then a need to learn. And so quite often some of the value of that uh, mass education, the scaled education is the accessibility uh, and of high quality content that's available to those individuals. And so, you know, uh, the, the, I think there's some in our community that may tend to say, you know, yes, all learning is local, all learning is individual, but that doesn't mean that um, 
creating content that addresses the aggregate needs won't create a really nice scaffold or a set of buoys for the learners who in that aha individualized moment then can go someplace else and find that high quality education. I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And this to me speaks to the importance of really building in that reflection into the educational activities we do, whether it be traditional, whatever that means anymore, a CME program, or if it means things that we're trying to do now in, in, in board certification, it's how do I take this? How do I think about my context? How do I realize what my need is? How do I find out something that I didn't know before or something that I thought I knew, but I really don't know? What, learning the correct thing, but then how do I think back upon how am I going to apply that in my context? Not just pre-test, I got it wrong, post-test, I got it right, but what am I going to do with that information? One of the reasons I am a fan about asking on our CPD um, evaluation is not, are you going to change your practice, but how are you going to change your practice? Recognizing that some people just fill it out quickly and move on. Using questions like that on, a, on an evaluation or in the moment of an activity, talking to other peers, facilitating those conversations and reflections so people can come back with something that they are actually going to apply in their context. In an hour long single activity, there are lots of different potential learning points. And again, everybody's gonna have a different learning point. I am happy as an educator if somebody comes up with one thing that they can write down that they're going to do, commit to, to commit to changing their practice to see if it works or not, they can reflect on that and do that. That to me is an educator. Just, just for those who may not have caught that, that means 100% of your learners completing an entire activity and going to get credit is not necessarily the goal of the educational interventions we're building. And so this, this idea that if 70% of the people that come to your educational intervention navigate parts of it that they find important, then that's high value to the community. Um, you know, that this race for numbers versus race for impact, I think is, uh, creating some uh, disincentives to do what we really need to be doing. Being an Alliance member has its perks. From discounts to industry-leading events like the Alliance Annual Conference, to members-only access to the Alliance communities, the Alliance is where healthcare CPD professionals come to learn. Visit acehp.org slash membership to join today. Okay, so time being what it is. I want to kind of move forward a little bit and see if we can understand um, the last 10 or 15 years. And so you find yourself now, and I'm interested in this, you find yourself, uh, is it fair to say, leaving Kaiser and joining ABMS? Is that, so can you walk us through that? Because that's, that seems like you were there at really important times and, um, led some other interesting efforts. Can you give us the ABMS years? Sure. So I was uh, involved in the, in the early 2000s as a, uh, as a member of the American Board of Family Medicine Board of Directors. So I was familiar with the board certification stuff um, happenstantially uh, during the rollout of MOC, as it was called, part one. And I was, Driven is not quite the right word. It was interesting to me to figure out, this was, it was a great concept that I totally agreed with about things need to be continuous and longitudinal rather than one and done. I mean, our own CPD literature says that same thing. Longitudinal stuff is what's gonna change practice, the one and done tend not to. So having had the opportunity to stay involved with the boards for a while, um, I was involved as the boards rolled out their, their, the ABMS portfolio program. There came an opportunity, uh, the, uh, the doc who was directing the portfolio program was retiring. There was an opening 
And so I joined ABMS initially to run the portfolio program or to help oversee and evolve the portfolio program, which was a part-time job at the time, which eventually it morphed into a, a full-time job as I took on other responsibilities. But what was really driving um, me at the time to take a step in that direction, if you will, gets back to the issue of collecting or connecting, learning, and doing. So here was an opportunity to take the learning, the educational activities, and implement it through this portfolio quality improvement effort to see if we can create those connections more explicitly. At the same time, as, as all of my physician colleagues or the great majority of my physician colleagues know, board certification, you know, the summative aspects is, is for most of us a pretty scary, it's maybe a little bit hyperbolic, but it can, be, it can induce some anxiety because we're being judged mm -hmm. uh, and given, uh, you know, that imprimatur, if you will. At the same time, it's important for us to know our peer, about our peers and for patients to know about us that we have a certain uh, level of, of uh, knowledge and uh, judgment to be able to be deemed a specialty in one's field. But this is very much um, for many folks, while it, it, it's, it's extrinsically motivated for many, it's intrinsically motivated for several, but I still have this ongoing belief that we can evolve board certification to not only be an extrinsic marker, but an intrinsic marker of motivation. So how do we take the board certification process, the ongoing certification process, the continuing certification process, and really set it up so clinicians can do, physicians can do what we wanna do, which is take better care of our patients, not just pass the test, complete my activities, okay, I'm board certified, that feels great. Um, I can you know, meet whatever requirements I have and feel good about myself. But how can we take the things we do in continuing certification and make them outcomes-based, but also intrinsically motivated to their patients? So when, patient, when somebody asks, how does this process make me a better physician? We can answer that. There, there's, I don't know, the, the easiest way to say this. The, one of the lessons I learned, which I think has really shaped my career over the last 10 or 15 years, is that learning and individual improvement is, they're not easy things. They're not natural things. Um, especially for those who always found learning to be really easy and never recognized the value of tools or skills or scaffolds. And I think it's fair to say slightly as an outsider that as maintenance of certification was coming along over the last 20 years, just like when continuing medical education came along almost 50 years ago, that there was significant pushback that, that there's a professional autonomy that, that needs to be held sacred. And so there was a lot of pushback from individuals saying this, I, I know what I need to know, and I, I don't need some external organization requiring this of me. But there's a lot of things in our day-to-day -day life that we believe we have full will and control over, but find ourselves making the same mistakes over and over and over again. I use the analogy of like, you know, how many people amongst us have a treadmill that's currently like a clothes rack in our, in our basement, because if we know we need to do it, but we don't need to do it. And so I've always looked at all the, the board certification work as being uh, the, uh, an effective scaffold that allows the individuals operating within the field to uh, understand the guardrails of what optimal professionalism holds. And that's not easy to do because of that autonomy challenge and the judging challenge of all of it. But it feels like it's just one more instance in your career of you seeing, um, you seeing the bigger picture that you know within a aha moment that individual needs support. They need to find. They need to be able to recognize it. They need to be able to find the content to support it. They need to plan to develop the skills and implement them over time. And if you string a whole bunch of those aha moments together. Well, we kind of understand a competency framework of what a clinician in a specialty needs to needs to understand. And so there's a guiding hand that can say, listen, you need to learn X, Y, and Z, and we're going to help with the tools 
and the timelines and the deadlines by which you should know that stuff, it, it just seems to be so obvious, yet that, that lack of recognition that one often needs external supports in their life for that type of, the, the, that, that's, there's an identity, there's an ego there that often um, gets in the way of people seeing the bigger picture. Maybe that was a long-winded and inarticulate way of saying it's another sign that you're seeing how the dots connect that most individuals don't see. I think more and more my colleagues are seeing um, that there is value beyond just the imprimatur. I mean, the boards ultimately have a responsibility to patients as well as the public to put this imprimatur of as a board certified family physician, you can expect certain things from me, Mrs. Jones, Mr. Smith, so forth and so on. At the same time, one of my beliefs is we've had this uh, dichotomy, if you will, it's either summative or formative. And the boards do the summative and the CPD folks do the, 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 the formative. And you know, there's no in, in between uh, you know, not, not the two shall meet. Um, I am driven by the belief that you can have formative and summative together. Um, that there actually is literature that suggests that um, summative assessments, you know, these high stakes things can be motivated yeah. and, and, and people will take them seriously. At the same time, if you're just doing summative for summative's sake, that seems like a not very valuable experience. Yep. So how do we take these experiences that we do at the boards and help the boards be comfortable making that summative decision, the granting of the imprimatur of specialist in X, at the same time create the learning experiences for physicians to in fact continue to learn and to feel like this is a valuable use of their time. It's a journey uh, for sure, but I would say that certainly compared to 20 years ago, uh, we are much further um, down that road than we were. Plenty of work to do still, um, plenty of exciting work to do still, but I'm not convinced that it's either formative or summative and neither the two shall meet uh, is, is the right framework for us to be thinking about. Yeah, I, I, I again, as an outsider to all of this, I, I, I love where it's going because I think it'll have a positive impact, but because I know it's going to require additional research, additional methodologies and additional data models for us to get to where it needs to be. And that means more people are gonna be focused on measuring what's the right type of learning, what's the right cadence, what are the right measurements of all of this. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking from the outside in saying, I, I think we're gonna kick off a lot more interesting research and science in support of this because again you can't just do it for the sake of doing it the pushback is prove to me that it's going to make me a better clinician prove to me that it's going to make my care better and i think we're going to get there so um purely so my producers don't cut this thing in half and try to make two or three episodes out of it we'll try to summarize so so we have a lot of work to do um what what is what is Dr. David Price doing now? What are the windmills that you're currently jousting at? What what's good to come? I I, I love the jousting um, analogy and having all sorts of interesting visuals. But 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 that aside for a second, I, I continue to be driven by the need to create situations connecting learning and doing so how do i you know i have that objectively identified thing that i need to improve how do i learn if i need to learn about the various aspects of that how do i take that and put it in practice and then how do i get feedback on how successful i am and by the way we've talked about numbers uh, before numbers are certainly important but to get back to the story about you know use cases we can learn a lot from our successes. We can also learn a lot from times we're not successful. So as part of this learning doing cycle, the important I, I like to think about the importance of mixed methods research 
there's the numbers, did it work, didn't work, but there's the narrative or the qualitative research, why did it work or how did it work or why didn't it work that are gonna be important. So using this connecting of learning and doing in a realist framework, what works for whom under what circumstances using mixed methods, narrative, as well as quantitative, um, I, I think are really particularly important. For those of us who work uh, in integrated health systems, whether it be a Kaiser Permanente or a VA or a um, now increasingly in academic medical centers that are parts of health systems, there's this alignment of the internal education or the internally supportive education that goes on with organizational goals. So if the organization has identified gaps in care of patients with a specific condition or in care of patients who are um, of different races and ethnicities than white guys um, like you or I, um, how do we align our educational efforts with that rather than just saying, hey, we're here, we can help you. How do we start listening to the needs of our organizational leaders, thinking about what they're doing, being the fly on the wall, maybe suggesting how we might contribute to that process, aligning the, our work, recognizing that we don't have to be the solution, we need to be part of the solution, so this gets back to team-based. I don't have to prove that I did everything, but I want to be valuable. So this is one of Carol Havens' influence on me. Um, if I contribute 10% or 100%, I don't particularly care as long as I contribute something. So how do we learn to collaborate more effectively in our organizations and align our educational efforts with what the organization needs? There's certainly a role for all the content-based stuff that, that's done, but as a member of an organization, I may not need to focus on the cardiovascular content to the didactic stuff. I might have to focus on how do I do it in practice or how do, you, how to do the how in my day-to-day -day work. How do I work with other people in my organization to do that? How do I collaborate so I don't have to do all the data analysis? Maybe somebody is doing it anyway. How do we use implementation science? How do we make these longitudinal efforts rather than one and done? So that alignment of education within a healthcare system or healthcare enterprises is very important uh, to me. So uh, I, I think we're approaching close to 50 minutes, which is not a surprise. I, I walk away, David, with this belief that you have painted a picture of what we need to do and somehow painted it with the detail to let us know that it's not simple, but also uh, the detail to let us know it's not impossible. And someplace in between those two is a path for hopefully the next few generations to pick up and move us forward. And I, I gotta think that is uh, a rewarding professional journey, yeah? I certainly hope so. I, I would emphasize that this is a journey. Um, it's not a destination. We can always get better. And I hope that uh, the work that I've been fortunate enough to do with many, many, many colleagues, too many to, to name, um, creates that scaffold for others to continue on this journey. The last thing I would, uh, or one of the last things I would leave people with most people who know me will roll their eyes when they hear me mention my famous mantra, repetition is the key to adult learning. So this is a journey. We have to keep at it. We have to keep doing it. Hopefully more and more people, uh, our younger colleagues, will continue to repeat but learn from these things and build on them so we can continue to make those improvements. The, the, the corollary of repetition is the key to adult learning is reinforcement is the key to adult doing. So one of my greatest wishes for my colleagues, uh, current and future colleagues, is that as they undertake these journeys, uh, these not insignificant, not simple efforts, is that they will be reinforced uh, and rewarded for their efforts, just like I have been so fortunate to have been reinforced and rewarded for that course in my career. Thank you, David. 
Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Alliance Podcast, Continuing Conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to stay updated on future releases. In the meantime, we invite you to access our wealth of continuing professional development content on the Almanac at almanac.acehp.org. Until next time.